Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Few. If it's the first time you've heard this podcast or you're coming back but you've forgotten to subscribe, make sure you look down below in the show notes. You can watch us on YouTube. And most importantly, leave a review. And I know after today's podcast, you're going to be very motivated to do that. It's quite by accident that I've dressed in my afterburner flying suit gear today, having just done some recording this morning for a client. But at the same time, it's quite convenient because today's guest is somebody who is familiar with the aviation environment. In fact, comes from it from a very unique perspective. I think we might spend a bit of time today talking about how to look at life and business from a different perspective, but transition that experience as a United States Air Force pilot into business. So with no further ado, hey. Uh... Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn what it takes to turn your dream into reality. Don't be afraid to dream big. But remember, dreams without goals are just dreams. This is The Few with Boo. Robert Haynes, thanks so much for joining me today on The Few. I feel very honored to have you here, and it's just after Veterans Day. Thank you for your service, sir. Well, thank you, Boo. I really appreciate the invitation to be here and excited to talk with you and just kind of share my journey. So, Rob, you've flown airplanes that fly very high, don't you? And I have a pretty cool name, the Dragon Lady. I know you've had an extensive Air Force career, but let's start there because you're a U-2 pilot. And a U-2 yes. pilot is not the kind of flying job that many people have. What do you tell us a little bit about what a U-2 pilot is, how you get there, and what makes it so unique? And one of the few uh, really unique jobs that are out there. Yeah, it's, uh, there's very, very few of us. You know, the airplane, the U-2 Dragon Lady made by Lockheed Martin started 1955. There's still just over a thousand pilots who have ever flown it. So it really is a community of the few. Very difficult airplane to fly, but very special mission. For those that aren't familiar with it, it's a high-altitude reconnaissance platform, continues to operate globally around the world. The U-2s that we're flying today are much different than the ones in the early 50s, late 60s. These are uh, cutting-edge, leading-edge technology, amazing, amazing collection platforms that do great service to our nation and international community. To fly the airplane, how do you get there? I mean, I think... You know, your little intro is about having a vision, having a goal. When I was a kid growing up in Austin, Texas, boo, I had a picture of a U-2 on my wall. I was just mesmerized by this airplane. It just looked so differently than anything else. And at the time, there was a movie that came out with uh, Lee Majors that he was portraying Gary Powers, Francis Gary Powers, who was shot down over the Soviet Union. Many people know that story. But I was mesmerized by this airplane, you know, and I went to the United States Air Force Academy, very blessed to be able to go there, and then the Euronato Joint Jet pilot training and fly a number of things. But on one of my missions, flying out of Washington, D.C., down to Patrick Air Force Base in Florida, I was uh, actually flying VIP airlift at the time. I happened to peek inside a hangar, and I saw a U-2 in person for the very first time, and it was inside this hangar, all geeked out with all this special equipment and antennae and different instruments and sensors. And it was protected by a cordon and several security guards. And boo, I was mesmerized. 
right? This was the coolest flying machine I had physically ever seen. It comes with an aura, doesn't it? Because people don't realize it's not just an airplane. It's a mission system. And the system that it integrates in is, is really an enormous strategic resource for a nation. So part of that really, as you said, it's the security. You know that when it's what it does has a real genuine purpose to it, right? It does. Yeah, a very unique purpose. And like you said, it is a mission system. Although it is piloted by a single pilot, it is connected electronically and digitally with a network of people around the world, physically around the world, that are collecting, processing, transmitting information. And so although I was physically flying it, I was linked up with a hundred different people federated in different sites around the world, accomplishing the mission with me. And so it was a fascinating network to be in. But after I saw this plane in Florida, I flew back to my commanding officer that evening and I walked into his office. I want to go do that. How do I go do that? Right. And um, we didn't know. We didn't know how do you get into this community. And he saw the passion in my eyes and we said, like, okay, let's figure this out. So thankfully, I had a very good commander mentor who made, started making phone calls and we started doing the discovery process of, hey, how do I do this? Unfortunately, at the time, I didn't have enough hours. I didn't have enough experience to even apply for the program. And so we charted a course for me, like any good mentor does. It's like, okay, in order to do that, this is what you need to go do. And um, I did it, right? I went to another weapon system. I accumulated enough hours. I became a, a major weapon system instructor. I started uh, rushing the fraternity, so to speak. This is a very close-knit community, the U2 community. And so I just started to visit them and uh, started them to get to know me. And so when I had enough hours to apply, I put in my application and thankfully was accepted to go interview. The interview process, people don't know, is two weeks long. It is a very extensive interview. But before that, Robert, how many years had you invested without a direct return and without a guarantee, but you committed to a process? Like how long was that between, I guess it was from the moment you had that poster on your wall as a child? Yeah, I mean, I had the vision in my mind, a poster on the wall, because I was familiar with the plane, and I was like, that looks like something really special, right? From the time I physically saw it until I was qualified or had the qualifications to make the application was five years, right? So for five years, I lived, breathed every single day on this is what I want to do. I want to do something today that's going to get me closer to that, right? So what am I doing today that's going to get me closer to that goal? And I was very, very committed. And, and you're doing a lot of extras, right? You're making the time to go and visit. You're doing all of this extra activity that is above and beyond what the expectation is. I remember when I wanted to be a fighter pilot, you know, from the age of 13, I was visiting fighter squadrons back when you could. <laughs> and by the time I joined, I was on a first name basis with a lot of these folks, right? And I, and I knew them by name. And like hearing your story, I haven't heard it for a long time where demonstrating that commitment and, and how just seeing something, not even touching it or just seeing something can invoke that visceral response and connect your day-to-day -day action with that sense of purpose. Sorry for interrupting, but I, I just think people forget that. Like people forget that when the big thing happens to you in life, just the, the amount of work and commitment with zero return that you have to put in prior to that moment. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate the interruption because I think that's a really important point. It's more than just meeting the qualifications to submit an application. You know, I needed this many hours. I needed to be an instructor. I need to have the certain level of experience. But I also understood, Boo, that this community received many, many, many more applications than they had spots applicants. So I was trying to differentiate myself from any other applicant. And so I knew that if they knew me, when they saw my application finally come 
across the desk, they'd be like, oh, Robert is ready, right? We know him. We're ready to give his application the proper consideration. And so- We've been waiting for this moment. Yeah, exactly. And that's what it was. Is they, they kept talking to me. It's like, okay, when are you going to submit it? When can you submit it? And so when I submitted it, yes, they were looking for it. And so I think that made all the difference. Not in a, an annoying way, but I just made myself familiar enough with them that they knew who I was. And they knew that. They knew I was committed to it. And I think that also helped when, from a technical standpoint, maybe I wasn't the most qualified candidate, but I knew from a passion and commitment standpoint, I was absolutely the number one candidate in my mind, right? And I think that's what they saw. Just so people know, what is it that's so unique about this airplane? I mean, you, you're the closest thing to an astronaut that the Air Force has, right? Yeah, it is a very difficult airplane to fly. And we fly in a pressure suit, right? An astronaut pressure suit. And so it is very cumbersome, very um, claustrophobic inside this very enclosed canopy in this heavy pressure suit. And so the physical environment is very, very difficult. And the airplane, for those not familiar, it's a 104-foot wingspan. It's on bicycle gear. So there's a gear up front and a gear in the back, a tailwheel. It's a tailwheel airplane. There are outriggers on the wings that are holding the wings level after we do an engine start and taxi out. But when we start our takeoff roll and the wings start generating lift, the pogos, we call them the pogos, fall off. And now you're balancing from even the initial takeoff sequence, you're balancing a 104-foot wingspan going down the runway until it generates enough lift to lift off. But then it climbs like a homesick angel. I mean, it just soars rapidly up through 50, 60,000 feet. You've basically got a glider with a fighter engine in the back, right? It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. It is a glider. And thankfully, when I was at the Air Force Academy, I was a glider instructor. So I knew that what that felt like, you know, a very, very long, high aspect wing, very, very difficult to control. And fighter jets have swept wings and they're pointy because you're not going to have a problem if you go too fast, right? But when your wing is a big surfboard and you go too fast, you have a problem, right? So you've got a lot of yeah, and this is the U2's challenges between going too fast when you're down low, but equally trying to keep the thing between stalling or exceeding limits at the very edge of the atmosphere, yeah? Yeah, at our mission altitude, so above 70,000 feet, we fly a Mach profile. And so there is an autopilot that intercepts a Mach. And then as we burn down gas and become lighter, the plane continues to climb the entire sortie. And as we climb, the window between an overspeed and a stall becomes down to less than 10 knots. And so we're constantly trying to balance, not overspeeding the airplane, but not stalling the airplane. And oftentimes, if you hit a little you know, temperature inversion up at altitude, the plane will hiccup up a little bit and go right into a stall buffet. And so it requires a immense awareness of what is going on during the mission and an understanding of how to fly. And the best advice, we'll get to the landing in a second, but the best advice when I was learning how to fly the U-2 from my instructor was to forget everything I knew about flying an airplane and just listen to what he told me, right? Because it does not fly like any other machine out there. And that is very demonstrated during the landing portion. You know, it does land on those bicycle gear. And so there are no landing gear out on the wings. And so when we come in for a land, we have to stall it to land it because once we get into ground effect, so when the wing creates a cushion of air between the wing surface and the ground, the plane does not want to land. It will just float down the entire runway on that cushion of air, even if the throttle is all the way back to idle. And so you have to physically stall the airplane to get it to come down. 
And so our technique is Which is what you're taught not to do as a pilot, right? Yeah, exactly. You don't want to do that. Yeah. And so once again, forget everything you learned about flying. Just listen to how to fly to YouTube. The process we would use is to try to cross the threshold of the runway at 10 feet. There is another pilot in a car driving behind us that is giving us altitude calls or height above the runway. And the reason for that is with the spacesuit helmet on and some of the sensors that we carry, we cannot see the runway when we're in the landing attitude. And so we need an audio cues from a pilot saying, hey, you're at 10 feet, 8 feet, 6 feet, 4 feet. We try to get down to 2 feet and just hold it, hold it, hold it off until the airplane will stall on its tail. And then gently, we hope, the main forward gear will touch down. But still, the ride is not over because we're balancing this 104-foot wingspan going down the runway trying to get it to uh, come to a complete stop. And then we will let a wingtip like, gently ease down to the surface of the runway. There are titanium skids on each of the wingtips but it is a crazy it's like trying to fly a leaf down to the ground <laughs> yeah and it is a crazy thing to fly i'm really keen to explore you know some of the analogies for a business right i think there's patterns of behavior that we learn and those patterns of behavior can be applied to any of life's challenges or problems right so when you're flying within 10 knots and for people that aren't familiar with that that's you know, 12 miles per hour or 13 miles per hour on a very fast piece of machinery, you make a mistake. When you stall, the airplane falls out of the sky. When you overspeed, the wings rip off, you fall out of the sky. So, so the, both of those outcomes are suboptimal. What do you learn about focus and attention and the relationship between technology, automation? And, and you're up there for a long time. I mean, let's take it to the worst case scenario. How do you not fall asleep and how do you stay stimulated where the consequences are so profound? First of all, I think each of us realize we're being pushed to our physical limitations when we are flying that airplane, right? And that's something we just get very, very comfortable with, that every mission is a life or death scenario if we do not perform to the maximum of our physical and mental abilities on that day, right? So right there, you have my attention, right? And so I think just knowing that and having that self-awareness of, hey, in this moment, I'm completely present. What I'm doing, I'm prioritizing my task and I know and I'm 100% concentrated on exactly how am I performing as a pilot and how is the machine performing as an aero vehicle and then how is the mission going? Because most of the time we're connected to a network of people. I mean, it typically doesn't get boring because we are trying to accomplish a mission. And so, you know, there is an interaction there in many circumstances. Sometimes we would be off what we would call off tether, where we're not connected digitally to someone else. And we're just going off and doing a mission by ourselves. And we're not talking to anyone up to 12 hours. And so those missions, uh, we really have to stay focused. But that is a skill that is learned, Boo is how to stay present in the moment and focus on the priorities at hand, right? And not allow our minds to drift off and be distracted by things that can honestly kill us, right? I think, you know, in my work with business owners, what I do now is I, I coach and then strategically advise business owners. It's, it's a lot of the same skills, right? It is, A, be present in the moment, what's most important in your business and in your life at this very moment. Not be too concerned about what has happened previously because there's nothing we can do about it. Let's garner the lessons and the wisdoms learned that we can from the past experience. And then let's forecast what's going to happen in the future, but we can't get too anxious about things we can't control. So let's do what we can today in this moment to maximize the benefit to us and our business. When it comes to perspective, just talk us through how high this airplane flies. What happens to you at that altitude if things go wrong? Yeah. So above 70,000 feet, you know, it continues to climb above that altitude as a burns down gas, it gets lighter. You know, we have to wear a pressure suit because although the U-2 is pressurized, when I was flying the airplane, uh, we would be sitting about, um, the cabin altitude would be about 25,000 feet. 
which is extremely high, right? Which is incredibly physically, physiologically exhausting, right? To be able to sit at 25,000 feet um, for hours and hours at a time. It's just the biology of your body just doesn't like that kind of altitude. Why we wore the I mean, that's Everest, right? That's when people are getting altitude sickness. They're dying. Yeah, yeah. You know, that that's the sort of height we're talking about here. Yeah, right? that's the kind of height we're talking about. And we would sit there for, you know, 12, 13, 14 hours at a time. But if we lost pressurization, so if something malfunctioned on the airplane and we lost cabin pressure inside of our little capsule, it would go skyrocket to above 70,000 feet. And at 52,000 feet, the nitrogen escapes from your blood and you physically boil. I mean, it's, it's as your blood will boil. And so that is why we're wearing a pressure suit in case of that potentiality of losing pressure, having a malfunction. And if we did that, the suit would inflate instantly and it would protect us, protect our, our body from dying. That's crazy. Yeah. And I presume in its almost 60, 70 year history that a lot of what you've learned, the lessons are based on incidents or accidents, right? Yeah, of course. Like aviation in general, you know, we learn from uh, unfortunate circumstances and instances. It's like, okay, how do we not let that happen again? Quick question on that, right? Like one of the things I've certainly noticed about business is an avoidance of things going wrong or not wanting to be honest about a product that might be on its way to being obsolete and people potentially just grinding it away without lessons from the past. How important was it for you in that community to be able to learn lessons in the near past, but also create a culture where you remembered the bigger incidents, you know, the, the icebergs to avoid. What was different in the U2 community that business could take out and learn and deliver real value? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, you know this as being an aviator, right? There's tremendous amount of preparation in pre-brief emission planning, where especially for high value missions, where you know a lot of things can go wrong, there's a tremendous amount of planning, team planning about what are all the different consequences and what are actions that, what are we going to do if this happens? What are we going to do if this happens? What are we going to do if this happens? So there's a lot of pre-planning and pre-thought, which I think a lot of people in the business community don't plan very well, right? They don't really strategically plan for a lot of different things that could potentially go wrong or go right. And how do they mitigate the failures or how do they leverage the successes, right? There's just not a lot of that pre-planning. The other thing that we know from our aviation background is, yeah, we're technically good aviators, boo, but it's the debriefs, right? Where we learn the lessons that we want to instill inside of us. And it always amazed a lot of my friends when I would say, I would go fly, you know, if it's a training mission, I might go fly for two hours and I might spend six hours dissecting that briefing, dissecting the mission and every single component of the mission in a six hour debrief for a two hour mission. And they were just blown away by that, you know? And I think we would look at, how did we do the mission planning? How did we do the aircraft pre-flight? How did we do the radio calls? What could we have done better? What were we thinking in this situation? What were we thinking in this situation? What else could we have done? You know, if we had done that, what do we think the result would have been? And so I think we are accustomed now to that level of self-critique and being open to the critique of others and open to the advice and perspectives of others because we learned so much in our aviation community from other pilots, right? I learned more in the bar, we call it the heritage room, right? But I learned more in the bar about how to be a good aviator and how to be a good U-2 mission pilot than, or as much in there that I did in the airplane, right? It's just talking and learning from others. And I think that's what a lot of business owners could benefit from 
is learning from other business owners and really have an environment where they do look back and they think about in that decision, what was I thinking? What could I have done differently? What would that potential result be? When I had made this decision and I thought the outcome was going to be this, did I achieve that outcome that I anticipated or was it something different or why was it different, right? So I don't think there's that self-reflection often enough in the business community, especially the small business community where the owners are really just trying to keep their business open often. But don't you think that's a function of a lack of debriefing? I mean, I often hear organizations say, hey, we're just too busy to debrief. And my thought is, well, you're too busy because you're not debriefing. Yeah, exactly right. It is. Yeah. I think all business owners know that there are improvements that they can make. They just don't feel like they have time to make them because they don't give themselves time without the knowledge of if I just force myself to make the time to learn how to do things better, I will create so much more time to do things differently, right? And better and improve. And so I think there's a lot of parallels that we can learn from our, from our aviation background that just became natural to us. But when I jumped into the business world and the business consulting world, I just realized, oh, people don't do this, right? But we can see the benefits of what we learned to be able to help them do things better. Hi, it's Boo here. If you're enjoying these episodes of The Few, please show your support by leaving a review. It costs you nothing. And the more reviews we have, the better guests we can reach out and bring onto the show to help you close the gap between what you want and where you are today even faster and help you on your journey to become one of the few too. So tell us a little bit about how you apply that within the framework of TAB. Maybe just share the value of something like TAB and how what you've learned in the past. I'm going to get on some deep humanitarian questions soon with the altitude perspective, but let's, let's save that for the end. But right now, like within the peer network that you operate in today, what do you see as the value of that and mapped across to how we had that same peer group accountability and support in the Air Force? Yeah, so TAB is called the Alternative Board. And we recognize the fact that big businesses have a board of directors for a reason, right? And this goes even all the way back to Napoleon Hill and this concept of a mastermind group. It's really trying to put leaders around the table with other leaders to be able to leverage the experience and wisdom of others in order to harness wisdom and make better decisions, right? Ultimately, in a corporation, a CEO is accountable for the decisions, but those decisions are not made in the vacuum, right? They're made by discussion and wisdom with other wise people. Small business owners typically don't have the benefit of sitting around the table with other business owners to explore challenges and opportunities and harness the wisdom of others. And so that is what the alternative board does is we create an alternative board of directors for small business owners, where we will build boards of directors for business owners to meet every single month. And every person on there is a tab you know, member, and they're serving as a board of directors for each other. And each of them come with an issue to discuss at a monthly board meeting about the greatest challenge or the greatest opportunity going on in their business at that time right? I facilitate the conversations. But once a business owner presents an issue, hey, this is what's going on. This is some background information. This is the result I'm looking for. This is what I'm thinking about trying or I've tried already. This is what help I need from you. The most powerful next step is we ask each other very, very hard questions, right? Is because it's the power of the questions from peer business owners that forces us to think differently, right? Let's unpack that for a minute, mate. That's all great in terms of intention and conceptually, 
But do you observe that business owners in a peer group naturally, oh, let me tell you about all the stuff I'm, I'm not doing great as a leader at the moment. And yeah, I've got problems in my business. I mean, my experience is quite the opposite. Like to break through that, what have you experienced? Yes, there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of pride. There's a lack of, lack of transparency. But after, I would say it takes about four to six months in my experience of a board being together where they realize they will benefit from this confidential group because we're all in this pocket of confidentiality. Whatever happens in their room stays in the room. That they realize that they will benefit if they put their cards on the table and really open their mind and open their heart and say, this is what's going on, right? Because when we create that space, Boo, it is the only space for many business owners where they can come in and say, I have no idea what I'm doing, or I'm losing money, or I can't fix this problem. They have no other place to do to say that where they know they're not going to get judged, but they also are communicating that to a group of people who completely 100% understand exactly how they feel and what they're saying, right? And they're only in that same room together because they're 100% committed to help each other. Once they realize that, right, that this is a group, it's almost like a crew on an airplane, right? Once you form that crew, they are really there to support each other for mission success. And that's the same way with one of our gear boards. And so it takes a little bit of time to build that trust and authenticity. But once we have it, it is an incredibly powerful place to be. And there's, again, a nuance there. And you're talking about maybe at the start of this journey, maybe people are looking to join these peer groups for what they can get out of it, but quickly realize it's being in service to everyone else in terms of your humility and intention to help others grow that almost by accident, that's what happens to you, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it also happens to, you know, that's one reason why I focus so much on the questions, because when I ask business owners to ask each other questions that no one else is going to ask, right? The really hard questions, it forces us to think really critically, right? Because it's easy to ask softball questions. But if I know as you're working around the table that, oh, I, I need to ask Boo a really challenging question. And I really draw that from my intuition. And I really kind of try to figure out what a question am I going to ask that's really going to challenge your thinking or another business owner's thinking. It helps us be more critical in our own thinking, right? And so not only does it help the other person think, how am I going to respond to this question? Because no one ever has asked that before. And through those questions, and through that curiosity is we learn to think differently. And if we think differently, we act differently. If we act differently, we will achieve a different result. It's amazing. Like kids, children ask so many questions. Why this? Why does that happen? Why is this? Right. And it's that natural curiosity that somehow, you know, in middle school and high school, we lose that. Right. When you talk to high school educators, you know, every kid in class is sitting there. They don't want to ask any questions. Um, oftentimes, because... With our kids, we're like, don't ask me. Don't ask. Stop asking questions, right? We diminish that curiosity sometimes. Or afraid of looking stupid, right? Or afraid of looking stupid, yeah. If I have to ask this question in math class, why isn't anyone else asking the question? Everyone else must know it. Everyone else must know how to run a business. It's just me who's the idiot that doesn't, right? Yeah. So we try to bring that curiosity back out, you know, where there is no stupid question. Just whatever is really stirring inside you that you really want to know ask that question. And we go around and ask these questions of each other and it becomes very, very powerful. But the next step though, is where we leverage the wisdom. Okay. In this situation, if a business owner brings this challenge, we ask questions, we clarify what the issue is. We really understand the background, what result the business owner is looking for. Now we leverage the wisdom in the room and be like, okay, based on your experience, what advice do you have 
for this business owner? What suggestions do you have? And that's where we get often very conflicting advice, very conflicting opinions from other business owners, right? Because every business owner's journey is different. And I try to make the room as diverse as possible. So you have someone that might be in manufacturing and professional services and retail and some variety of businesses. And so they look at things from a completely different lens. And so we harness those different perspectives. And so it makes us really consider different viewpoints and be like, okay, based on what I've heard today, I make each of them commit to take an action, right? And we hold each other accountable. And that's the thing is I'm going to bring an issue. I'm going to be challenged and questioned about, you know, so they truly understand the issue before they provide any advice. I'm going to hear different forms of advice or opinions, and then I'm going to make a decision about what action I'm going to take. And I know they're going to hold me accountable. Often it goes back to just with the environment you and I used to live in, in our squadrons, with our peers, with our teammates, and me, and, you know, they would hold us accountable. Are you doing everything you can do to be the best aviator you can be? Are you being, are you doing every action every day to accomplish your mission as best as you can? We would question each other. We would challenge each other, but we would commit to helping each other be as successful as possible. That's the same spirit of cooperation and commitment that we have in these peer boards. And I think it's critical. I mean, it's so hard to keep yourself to account. We perceive that we can, and we perceive that we're, you know, we're bulletproof and we tell ourselves a story, but what we believe, I think, is there's a, there's a deeper insecurity there that only a peer group can, supportive peer group, you don't want to be in a toxic or negative one, obviously, it makes all the difference. Now, what does one learn about humanity when you hang out above 70,000 feet? What does that give you in terms of your perspective on life, the planet, everyone that's on it? Did you have any moments where you just really become quite contemplative? Oh, absolutely. There are many moments I can reflect where, you know, the earth looks so small. I mean, we really do see the curvature of the earth. You do start to realize that this is a big rock in the universe that we live on. And I was enormously privileged and honored to be able to have that perspective real time. And there are often times where we'd be flying in certain regions of the world where there's a lot of catastrophe and things going on below us. You know, there's a lot of conflict. And we were there to try to discover what is really happening. I mean, in the intelligence world, that's all we're trying to discover is, I mean, what is the ground truth? What is really happening? What is the information we need uh, to provide our, our leaders so they can make good decisions? But but it does occur to me, it's like, why is all this happening? I mean, you can see this great, beautiful, amazing world, and you'd be flying over, from my perspective, some of the most beautiful landscapes that just take your breath away and see these glorious sunsets or sunrises and wonder why does all this occurring on the ground beneath me? And it just makes me ask the question of, why can't we just be nice to each other? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no. It's kind of simple, right? It is. I don't know of any value ever added to another human life when we are not nice to one another. It's just basic kindness and human you know, respect for each other. What a different world that would be. So, yes. My business partner and I had a saying, we had a business in Afghanistan and sometimes you get caught after curfew or you could get a bit uh, ropey, but we always said, if we're smiling, it's highly unlikely that someone's going to shoot us. And a smile and being nice is is so disarming. But I think we just get you know, this is, the, I think, the beauty of a debrief. The debrief just breaks these cycles. You know, you have negative perceptions of people. They invoke negative thoughts. The negative thoughts invoke negative decision-making. The negative decision equals negative actions. The prophecy becomes fulfilled and your perceptions become anchored in negativity around that person, that community, that religion. You know, I think our debrief cycle brought logic back to all of our questions. And I might've thought I was the best pilot in the squadron, but, you know, today when I overstressed the jet or had a hard landing or my 
average scores on the bombing range were the same as a student pilot. I'm going to have those moments and the hubris gets whipped away. I feel like in a business sense, when we have those moments, we ignore them. You're absolutely right. I think in our community, we had a culture of integrity and accountability where if you are flying a single seat airplane and you go out there in the airspace and you over G an airplane, you come back and report it, right? Just like, hey, this is what I did. It was wrong, but it needs an inspection. It would be so much easy just as, oh, no one's going to know about this. But we didn't do that because that was baked inside of us. It's not the right thing to do. And I think a lot of, for us, it is like, well, we don't want our comrade who's going to fly the airplane next to be in an airplane where we're not 100% sure of the integrity of the airplane anymore. But we self-reflected and we're self-aware to say, this is the right thing to do. This happened. It was bad. Let me report it and not just let it go. I think in business, we just let it, you know, too many owners just let it go, right? They don't want to say that was a bad decision or, oh, I really wasted that money or I should have not hired that person or I should have fired that person earlier, you know, or like you mentioned earlier, I'm hanging on to this product that I love so much, although no one's buying it anymore, you know, and just realize that, hey, that's not the right decision. And I think that's the value we provide is that different perspective. Let me get you out of your head as a business owner and put you around some other people that are going to ask you, why are you doing this? Or what are you thinking? You know, we try to stay away from why questions, but it's like, what are you thinking when you are doing this? Or what were you thinking? Or what did you learn from this? You can do something about what you can only think about why here. So along the way, Robert, were there moments where you thought that it just wasn't going to happen for you? Like almost like it's too hard, not going to happen. And if you did, what did you do? What got you to keep going? Yeah, I think that is where the power of your personal vision becomes so important, right? I do believe there are two situations in my life, Boo, where I felt like I manifested my future when I had no idea when I started how I was going to do it, right? The first one was getting accepted into the Air Force Academy. I had no idea, right? But there's a lot. Of, we're just talking about this to some guys literally yesterday who went to a reunion, watched the Air Force Army game, <laughs> and they were just saying how difficult it is. I mean, you've got to get a congressional or nomination or, or nomination from a senator, right? Which the average 16, 17 year old kid doesn't really have access to those people. Yeah. Or mix in those circles. So getting into a service academy is a big deal. It's a big deal. Yeah. I was at that Air Force Army game. It was a horrible game from an Air Force perspective. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Sir. But yeah, I mean, that dream started for me when I was about 10 years old. I had come across that there was this institution that was very elite uh, that for those that were qualified, graduate from the institution and get to go fly jet airplanes. It's like, I want to do that, right? And so I would spend every single night in my bedroom looking at, you know, the handbook and like some of the materials from the Air Force Academy, just imagining myself be there. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to get there, right? But even though along the route, it was like, oh, me, I just screwed that up. I don't think I'm going to get there. What helped me tremendously was I lived next door to a retired Air Force colonel, retired Air Force pilot who realized, okay, this kid is really serious about this, right? He's not just some punk, right? He's really committed and serious about doing this. So like my commander getting in the U2, he's like, well, let's figure this out, right? I didn't know congressman. I didn't know senator, but I ended up getting a nomination from the senator of Texas, Lloyd Benson, because we figured it out. And even though I'd come up with obstacles and I would get rejection letters, you know, from a congressman or I would get, you know, rejection letter from someone I had asked to do a letter of nomination who didn't know me at all. We just kept asking, right? And kept asking and kept asking and be like, well, let's try this. Let's try this. It would have been easy to take the first no and just like it's not going to happen. But we were just persistent because my vision was so strong. I was going to do whatever I had to do in order to get Right. And it was the same way to become a YouTube pilot. I was going to do whatever I had to do. I remember um, 
And my assignment prior to U2 is I was flying KC-10s out of Travis Air Force Base. So just trying to accumulate a lot of hours. And it looked like my career field was so undermanned that the Air Force would not release me from flying KC-10s to go fly U-2s, right? Like a breeding ground of airline pilots, right? It is, yeah. Constantly hemorrhaging pilots, yeah? They're constantly hemorrhaging pilots, you know? And so I kept getting no, right, from my assignment managers. I was like, no, we can't release you. We can't release you. We can't release you. But I just kept asking the question and asking the question and asking the question and finally had convinced the U-2 community so bad that I wanted to be there, that they were willing to go escalate the request to the appropriate level of general officer be like, hey, can you get this guy released to come over here, right? Because we really need him in our community. And so it's just a matter of not taking no for an answer and trying to figure it out. It is too many people get the first no and they quit. And the other thing is you don't need to be amazing. I was not amazing. When I joined the Air Force to be a fighter pilot, you know, I was not great at school. I was okay. I was not great at sport. I was okay. I certainly didn't feel like I was amazing at anything. But I didn't feel like I would ever not be a pilot. That was always there. And I think for people who are seeking something aspirational, there's loads of stories in the NFL, the Major League Baseball, NBA, of these incredible short or misfit personalities that punch well above their weight. Yeah, I think there's a big story in that. And this is probably one of the better stories I've had on the few that fundamentally, I mean, you use the word manifest and a lot of people think that's a load of garbage. Yeah, I, I think you do manifest. Like, I really do. I think you, you, you throw it out there. It's not enough to throw it out there. You throw it out there and commit to it. It will ultimately go from a manifestation into a reality. Yeah, there's a lot of, I'm a huge fan of manifestation. We can go down a rabbit hole in quantum physics and a bunch of other things. But yeah, let's go down it. Tell me about manifestation in the universe and, and quantum physics. Yeah, I mean, I do think when we put out in the universe, you know, what we want and admit that we all know from a physical, from a physics standpoint that we emit energies, you know, in our human body, those, these can be measured. But when we put our vision out there with commitment, with passion, with belief, as long as the vision won't harm ourselves or anyone else, right? It needs to be a positive vision. When we put that out there and continue to communicate it, communicate it, communicate it, I do believe, right, that those messages find people that will help us or can help us achieve that vision. Because it's like, if you want something passionately really bad, but you never tell anyone else, it never allows anyone else an opportunity to help you get there. And so I think a lot of people have these bold, bold, bold visions, but they are afraid of communicating them and they keep them inside of themselves. But instead of just saying, this is what I'm going to do, I don't know how I'm going to do it yet. And that gets a lot of people stuck on the how. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but this is what I'm going to do. And when we start to communicate that, the how reveals itself, right? Because we will start being connected with thoughts or intuitions or ideas that will start to materialize into the how. I do believe that that is how the universe starts to deliver things to us, is it takes our vision and it starts to send us signals back on, we call it thought or gut or intuitions, but we start to realize the how, right? It starts to formulate in our mind of, oh, that's how I'm going to do it. Or we start to stumble across a podcast. Oh, that is a good idea on how I want to do it. Or we meet someone at a networking group, a referral of, oh, this person has a piece of the puzzle that I need, that they are going to help me get to my vision. And so when we start to boldly, passionately communicate what we want to accomplish, that's the only way I believe that we can collect and manifest the environment around us that's going to help bring it to fruition. 
I agree with you. I don't know whether it's being able to fly, being able to see the world from a different perspective or understand the, the concept of something bigger than just the rock. But equally, I think it's quite hard to communicate that to a lot of people as well. Like it's a either misconstrued a spiritual gobbledygook or it can't be that easy. And it's not easy. You, know, you can't just manifest and rub the genie bottle. And I think it's all those little nuances that you articulated so gracefully there that really... It's just, as you're talking, I'm like, that's my story. The person that just came out of the blue, that heard through a friend, through a friend, through a friend, that that's what you wanted to do. And they just connected with them. And they're like, that's my job. And this young person wants to do that. I mean, if that lands on my desk, I'm like, yeah, what can I do? We're harnessed to help, right? More so now because how hectic life is, we forget how enriching that is and how much better it is for us to help. And then you get to an age, I'm sure you're no different now. And as I start to click over into 50, it's I've manifested. I don't, I've got it. And now it's time to be the receiver for those signals from other people, right? Yeah. And when you're open-minded to it, you receive those signals and you can can start to help others. Yes. That's awesome. Man, that's such great insight. I'm going to ask you this question, but I would presume the answer is nothing. If you went back to that you know, high school kid that was trying to get into the Air Force Academy and there was one thing that you would tell yourself that may have made your journey faster or easier or more colorful, is there any lesson you've taken away from life that you... I mean, if you're like me, you probably manifested all that stuff with, as a kid. You didn't even realize it. Didn't even realize it was, it was going on, right? But what would you go back and, and say to yourself? Or maybe what would you tell someone else's 14, 15-year-old son or daughter uh, t- to help them with their journey to become one of the few, to be who they're meant to be? Yeah, I think it goes back to, I didn't know it then, boo, but I know it now. And I want young people now to know that you must have clarity of vision of what you want your life to look like, right? Regardless of where you're starting off and what um, advantages or disadvantages you currently have, you have to have a clear vision in your mind of what you want your life to look like. And if that is a positive vision and you embed it in your heart and you embed it in your mind and you, it just becomes a part of your soul, right? That is the first step. That is the first step to really having the life you want to have. And I think if I was going to go back and tell myself as a high school kid is just have confidence, right? I think I lack a lot of self-confidence, even though I was working really hard. And at times I look at my hard work as maybe a way to compensate for my lack of self-confidence. But, but I'd look back now and be like, be confident, right? If you're doing the right things and you're surrounding yourself with the right people, which is really important, people that are really going to help you get there. And you believe wholeheartedly in what you're doing, not that it won't change in the future, but you go, forth every single day trying to take step forward to accomplish your vision that's how visions become reality mm, that's awesome it's not going to happen on its own preaching to the choir robert 110 percent. that was a, just a brilliant conversation thank you for uh thank you for being generous sharing insights into into unique world but more importantly how we can take some of that use it in business how natural it is coming from that environment you know i feel like you that you almost have a sixth sense when a business comes in there and how to, you know, tighten up the team and learn and use this debriefing kind of mindset to, to grow. And, and I think you just closed on an absolute high. I think in, in a world where people just don't seem to feel that there's any, any hope or, you know, my job's not even going to exist in two years and how do I fit into this whole puzzle is that just pick something and lean into it. As fast as it feels the world moves, it doesn't move that fast in reality. So, hey, man. Thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Boo, thank you. If you want to reach out to Robert, just click below all the links to his universe down there. And if you're a small business owner and you're looking for some phenomenal guidance, I think based on that podcast, (laughs) I'd be reaching out to Robert straight away. Remember, subscribe now. 
click below, leave a review. The more reviews we have, the better guests like Robert we have on the show. The show grows, the more people we have as listeners, so everybody wins. Once again, Robert, thanks so much for being on The Few. Thank you, Boo. Well, that wraps another episode of The Few, and I'd like to thank our partners, without whom this episode wouldn't be possible. Firstly, Ode Management, an organization that brings world-class speakers into your event or organization to make a profound impact on your people to deliver the results that you want. And Afterburner, real-life fighter pilots, a team of men and women who for the past 25 years have helped organizations surpass their expectations, learning the tips and tricks fighter pilots use to win 98% of the time. If you enjoyed the show, please show your support by subscribing to the podcast, The Few with Boo, or our YouTube channel. It's been an absolute pleasure sharing the stories of these remarkable people with you. I hope that helps you keep the dream alive, but more importantly, equips you with a few ideas of how to turn those dreams into reality to help you become one of the few too.